0: Have you ever thought about why it is you do what you do? I mean, what is it that motivates you to labor, to sacrifice, to just run the race, that this this daily trudging through life? What is it that motivates you to do that? What's that prompt, that trigger, that thing that encourages you to work? I would say that's vision. A vision is a desired future. It's something that we see up ahead, something that we hope for, something that we work for, and so we labor diligently to get there. I mean, you think about, um, it's, it's that vision of a holiday by the beach that causes somebody to go to their boss and ask for time off, to make all the travel arrangements, to pay the fees so that they can enjoy the sand and the sun. It's that vision of standing on the podium and bending over and receiving that gold medal, hearing your national anthem played that causes Olympians to sacrifice for years to put their body through all sorts of torture to face injuries and hardships just so that that vision can become a reality. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the same is true for Christians. We too, need vision. If we are going to strive to live the Christian life, if we are going to strive to exalt Christ in everything that we do, we need a vision. We need something set before us, a desired future, a desired hope that motivates us, that that causes, spurs us on to labor towards that goal, that upward call in Christ Jesus. That's why we sing songs like, Be Thou My Vision. We sing those Um, Because we're asking God for that vision, that desired future to be Jesus Christ. We want that to be true in our lives. It's that vision that motivates us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow Him. And if we don't have that vision, if Christ is not that hope, that goal that you set before yourself, what confidence do you have that you're actually going to run the race? What hope do you have that you'll actually persevere? You know, here at Redeemer, we too have a vision. A picture of the desired future that God has laid on our hearts. The image that we are becoming. The future that we seek to create. And we summarize it in our vision statement. Because we exist to exalt Christ, we strive to see lives transformed to the glory of God through the proclamation of the Gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit to all people. Our desire is to see Christ exalted, to see the name of Jesus praised for all eternity, and therefore we labor to proclaim Him, to make Him known, so that the power of the Holy Spirit might transform lives from people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, ultimately to the glory of God. That's our vision and our desired destination. And coincidentally, it's also Micah's. Today, as we look at Micah chapter 5, we're going to get a glimpse of Micah's vision of the exalted Christ. And it's, it was ironic, as I began to study this passage, that you could over, almost overlay our vision statement onto Micah's vision. Well, it's not ironic. We worked really hard on that vision statement. We wanted it to be true to God's Word, so uh, praise God for that. I mean, here Micah stands, and he has this vision of the exalted Messiah, Jesus Christ. He stands and he proclaims God's coming King, who will redeem and transform God's people for the purpose of God's glory. And so today, as we look at this passage, I really want to stress this, that that I pray that as you walk out of here, that that Micah chapter 5 will not only be Micah's vision, that it will not only be the vision of Redeemer Church, but it will also be your vision. But before we go any further, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to You because You are the God who opens eyes, who opens minds and hearts, so that we can perceive that which is true, that which is real, that which is most precious. And so God, as we labor today to unpack Micah chapter 5, I pray that You give us a vision For your exalted Messiah, that this shepherd king would be our treasure. That we would set our hope, our trust in him. And so by doing, our lives would be transformed. God, we ask that your spirit who is present here with us, be working in each of our hearts to transform us, to change us, to bring us into a greater image and picture of that vision, Jesus Christ. And it's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and read the chapter. Micah chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth forth. For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears to pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off." And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall no more, um, have no more tellers of fortunes. I, shall, I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. If this high king of heaven is going to be our vision, we first have to gaze upon how he's described in this passage. Now, I need to set the context. Verse 1 gives us an indication of what it is. In this historical context... Assyria has laid siege upon Judah. Uh, Micah says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now in 701 BC, the Assyrian army and all its vassal nations had actually surrounded Jerusalem. The army of Judah was absolutely overwhelmed. They were totally outnumbered. We learn from 2 Kings chapter 19 that when the Lord would eventually send His angel to destroy the Assyrian army, He he destroyed 185,000 soldiers. We also know from that same text that Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria at that time, he was taunting Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And he said to him, Hey, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can set riders upon them. He said this mockingly because he knew that they didn't have 2,000 riders. And so if these figures are at all accurate, you can see it's 185,000 to less than 2,000, or approximately 100 Assyrian soldiers for every one soldier from Judah. I mean, this is an overwhelming outnumber. I mean, they were, they were just completely surrounded, and there was little hope for any sort of... <clears throat> Treaty, any sort of deliverance, for all they knew, they were going to be destroyed. And the situation is also so humiliatingly one-sided that it's metaphorically equivalent to the king being clubbed upside the head. When he says, the rod shall strike the king of Judah on the cheek, he's saying there, your king is so defenseless, that he can't even hold his hands up to shield himself from the blows. That's how dire the situation is. That's how extreme the circumstance is. There's absolutely no hope. And it was here, in this situation, this most dire of time, that God presents this great and glorious hope. This chosen king who would bring deliverance to his people. The one who would rule with the strength and the majesty of the Lord. Into the direst of circumstance, God offers the greatest hope. And here in Micah 5, God is promising this coming Messiah, an anointed king who would actually fulfill God's promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12-16. through God said to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel and i have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies before you i will make you i will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on earth when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers i will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and i will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and i will establish his throne the throne of his kingdom forever i will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, God took David, a nobody shepherd, the youngest son of a no consequence family that lived in the town of Bethlehem, a nowhere town, and he made him king. And not only did he make him king, but he made him this promise that as as he made him a ruler, that he would make sure that his line, his dynasty continued forever, that there would always be someone on that throne, on David's throne, in David's place. Now even here in these two examples, we're seeing some, some big extremes. Here, you've got Micah's situation, in which there's a siege laid all around the people, there's no hope, and God promises a coming Messiah, and you see the same thing with David, in his example. Here's this nobody, who's made king, who's exalted and promised that His Son would reign forever. Again, in the most direst of circumstances, God offers the greatest hope. God takes what's foolish in the eyes of man and and He established it over all, so that no one could boast, so that God alone would receive the glory. In Micah, God promises that His Messiah would come from Bethlehem, the city of David. It's too... Little to be counted as any significance in the eyes of Judah. And here, in this town, God would bring forth his king. And it's interesting that, that just like in the time of, of David, Bethlehem received this honor, this privilege of being fruitful, of producing this ruler that, that it didn't deserve. I mean, it's interesting that the king didn't come from the city of kings, from Jerusalem. It came from this nowhere town. And again, God works in in ways that seem crazy to us. In the most unlikely of circumstances. And He offers the greatest hope. So just moving on. This Davidic king will be a tower to the flock. A hill to the daughter of of Zion. The former glory of the Davidic kingship will be restored. And he will be this shepherd king. This this ruler after God's own heart. And in verse 2... He says that the Messiah is coming forth from of old, from ancient days. And though this language occasionally is used to describe God, God's eternality, more than likely it's pointing back to this promise that we've just read in 2 Samuel. You see, David was the king 300 years earlier. He was the establishment of the ancient kingdom of Israel. And so this language is used here. It's also used in other passages like in Amos to refer to God's reestablishing the Davidic kingship. So he's pointing them back to his promise. And he's saying that this Messiah is actually the fulfillment of my promise to David. And that's of no less significance. Because God is a God who always keeps his promises. Um, But Michael wants to be really clear here. Michael wants to make sure that they know that the current leadership, the current kingship, the current dynasty is not the dynasty that he promised to David. Though they may be of the line of David, this is a completely different kingship. This, the kings currently have, have shown themselves to be failures one after another. I mean, even Hezekiah, who did all of his reform, failed to pray as he ought. He had fear. He doubted God. I mean, he didn't prove to be the man that God had promised to, to David all those years ago. And Micah provides us with a few clues so that we might know this. First, he says in verse 3, that God will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Micah and, and Isaiah were peers. They were prophesying at the same time. Thirty years before this, Isaiah had prophesied in in chapter 7 of the coming of Emmanuel, that the son Emmanuel would be born, and that he would reign on the throne of David in the name of God. And here Micah is actually affirming Isaiah's prophecy. God's people would be given over to exile until the birth of the coming Messiah, who will gather God's people from among the nations. And then in verse 4, It says that this king will stand. That no one will be able to prevail against him. No one will be able to conquer him. And he will shepherd his flock with the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord. And this is significant, guys. He's saying here that the son of David will shepherd his flock with the omnipotent, all-powerful strength of God. The same power that spoke the world into creation, that caused the plagues to fall on Egypt, that parted the Red Sea, that causes the earth to tremble and lightning to flash and the winds to howl. This power will be given to the shepherd king, this one born in Bethlehem. And not only that, but he will also shepherd in the majesty of the name of the Lord. This is the same majesty, the same glory that God says that He will not give to another. The same majesty, the same name that God protects jealously for His own. He's going to bestow it upon this coming Messiah, upon this coming King. All the authority, all the power of God, all the majesty of God given to this coming King. And again, evidence that this is not given to the current dynasty. Third, the result of of this king's reign is that the people will be perfectly secure. Because of the strength, the power, the majesty that he has, people have no need to worry. It says that no one can stand against him and he will be great to the ends of the earth. His empire will be universal to the very end of the earth. No one... And and not one square inch of this world, this universe, is outside of His control. And because that is true, they can have confidence. They can be sure that He will not fail them. That enemies will not prevail over Him. Fourth, He will be their peace. As the Prince of Peace, He will arbitrate on behalf of so many. As we looked at last week in Micah chapter 4, there will be no war that nations will actually beat their swords into plowshares, and no one will make them afraid. And then fifth, verses 5 and 6 says that this Messiah will deliver them from their enemies. And here he's referring to the Assyrian as a symbol for the, a representative of any who stand against God. When enemies come against God's people, this coming king will lead them to conquer over their adversaries. So this coming king is far greater than the current kingship. He will rule as an unconquerable, all-powerful, and sovereign Lord. He will shepherd God's people with the, as the hand of God Himself to guide, to protect, and to deliver from every possible threat. Friends, Micah is speaking of Jesus Christ. He's not speaking of any mere man who would follow after Hezekiah. He is speaking of Jesus Christ. And he did it 700 years before Christ was born in the town of Bethlehem. Um, Brett had already kind of alluded to this, but the Jewish leaders in, in Jesus' day read and understood Micah as a prophecy that their Messiah would indeed come from Bethlehem. And then Matthew, the apostle, applies this to Jesus. He said, yeah, this is true. This is absolutely true. Uh, John also affirms it in in John chapter 7. Jesus is this good shepherd who will be born in Bethlehem, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then over 40 times in the New Testament, if you look, Jesus is mentioned as being the son of David, as coming from the line of David. And, And here... This is again support that, that God is indeed fulfilling his promise to David through Jesus. Jesus is that son of David, God's king, God, the king to reign over God's people. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but Micah, as I've already kind of alluded, goes one step farther. Jesus, this Messiah, this coming Messiah, is not just a man that's from the line of David. This is not just a man who was born in Bethlehem. He is also fully God. I mean, I mean who, can, who can shepherd God's flock with the strength and majesty of the Lord except for God? I mean, who can have that same sort of power, that same sort of dominion, that unconquerableness, that, that sovereignty, except God, who refuses time and time again to give it to another? Micah is actually alluding to the fact that Jesus is fully God. Now I'm not aware if if he's aware of that, but we can understand that having read the New Testament over and over again. It affirms that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. In John 20:28, for example, Thomas, one of Jesus' followers, calls him My Lord and My God. Second Peter 1:1 was written to those who have tamed a faith of equal standing of ours by the righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Titus two thirteen and 14 says that we are waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, it's not as though when it says our Lord and our God, Jesus Christ, that these are two things, like our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's appositional. He's saying our God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. They're one and the same. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who will shepherd His people with the strength and the majesty of the Lord, who delivers His people from their enemies, who gathers a remnant so that they might dwell secure in the peace that comes only from God. And Guys, you know, I've talked, I know that I've talked kind of quickly and I've kind of presented a lot of biblical truth and historical facts or whatever to support something, but at the end of it, it all comes down to this. Do you really believe this? I mean, how does this change your life? If Jesus is truly the Son of God, He is this coming Messiah who will redeem a remnant, who will shepherd with the strength and the majesty of the Lord, how does it affect? your daily life? Is this your vision? Is this your hope? Because it ought to be. God's calling us to make it so. You know, if you don't get anything I mean, if you don't if you don't get this, the truth of who Jesus is, then Christianity doesn't matter. Christianity is not some moral code. That we live our lives just trying to do more good than, than bad. And God was going to have grace on us and forgive us. That's not what this is about. Christian Christianity is a realization of the truth. It's affirming what God says to be true in our hearts and our minds. That God sent His Son into this world to deliver a people for Himself. He's delivering them from a siege that is laid on their souls. A war that is waged in their hearts. And He does it to free them from their bondage. Guys, if you don't get this, the rest of what I say doesn't even matter. If Jesus is not that Savior, if Jesus is not that Christ, if you don't know who He is, then we're wasting our time. But God affirms time and time again, Jesus is that Messiah that He sent into the world to save the people for Himself and He will shepherd them as God's anointed ruler. Jesus is this King, and this King has a mission. Verses 7-15 through 15 lays out the tasks of this promised Messiah. First, we see in verses 7-9 through 9 that He is going to establish a remnant for Himself. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like shower on the grass, which delay not for man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears to pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all of your enemies shall be cut off. This remnant of God's people who are scattered throughout the nations will be gathered by this coming Messiah. Of these scattered, defenseless exiles, the coming shepherd will gather his flock. We read in, New, in the New Testament, like 1 Peter 2, 9-10, um, Peter gives this description of, of this remnant, who, is, who are actually comprised of people of all nations. He says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's intention is to take people who are not a people and make a remnant. That's the Messiah's task. And Mike actually gives us two images to describe this remnant. The first one is dew. In an arid land like Israel, dew is a very precious thing. It is a gift from God. They don't know when it's going to happen. It's very rare that it does. But when it does, it inevitably ends up blessing all who it falls upon. And so this remnant is to be that same type of blessing. And this this calls completely back to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, where he says that, I will bless you so that you might be a blessing. And through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So like dew, the remnant is gathered so that they might be a blessing to the nations, a means of life-giving renewal. And the second image is that of a lion. Now, a lion is a symbol of victory. And of conquest. I mean, we don't call him the king of the jungle for no reason, right? I mean, he's this powerful, menacing dominator. And here, God gives this description of Israel's future that kind of seems paradoxical to the previous one. I mean, you think, okay, you're you're due, you're supposed to bless people, but here you're this menacing conqueror who's gonna tread people down, and how does that work? You know, how does how does that fit together? Well, I mean, are we, really, are we really going to bless by treading people down, by tearing them to pieces, by conquering and, and cutting off our enemies? I mean, that sounds sort of like a jihadistic, right? You know, that we're promoting a holy war here. I mean, are God's true people to conquer through military strength? I mean, if you read in the New Testament, you understand that that's not the case. That we don't wage a physical war. Our war is spiritual. we are to wage war over dark powers to gain victory by saving souls, not by not by the physical sword forcing conversion, but by wielding the sword of the spirit, so that God might save soul, souls through his powerful word. We are to put on the armor of God right, that we may be able to stand against Satan and his cosmic powers, and as Paul says in second Corinthians ten verses three through five For though we walk in the flesh, we are are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Basically what God is saying here when he's calling us lions is that we are to be representatives of God's victory. God's victorious lion his the lion of Judah as another phrase that that is often given to Christ as God is gaining victory over the darkness that surrounds us we are actually to go on mission as representatives as enlistees into God's army to wage that same war so that we might be participants in God's old unfolding plan of redemption and so these two images actually provide us with some examples, some some opportunities to reflect on our own lives. You call yourself a Christian, but are you being due? Are you being a lion? When you go throughout your day, throughout your week, are you intentionally a blessing to others? Have you received that blessing from God and then are turning it to to serve others, to point them towards an eternal blessing from God. Or what about a lion? Do you go through life realizing that you're in the middle of a war? And though your king will absolutely conquer, this is not a promise so that we can sit by and just watch his unfolding plan of of triumph over all the dark powers, you know, just kind of sit idly by as bystanders. We are to get involved. We are to participate in that. We are representatives of that lion. And so, are you going on that same sort of mission? Are you waging war? Whether it be through prayer or through proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's what we're called to do. And so these, I I praise God for these reflections that we might look upon those and see whether or not we are Truly, the people of God. But the mission of Jesus is not only to establish God's people, He's also going to purify them. In verses 10 through 14, God promises to purify His people by removing everything that would lead their hearts to trust in anything other than Him. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no longer to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you, And destroy your cities. Friends, John Calvin was right when he said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. The prophet Ezekiel also says that men take idols into their hearts and set stumbling blocks before their faces. Paul says that God gave us over to our own depravity because of our insatiable tendency to suppress the truth and to worship and serve the created rather than the creator. We by nature are idolaters. We'll look at and receive a blessing from God and then we'll turn it into an image to worship. We'll turn it as as an object of our focus that inevitably takes our focus off of God and we place our trust, our hope in them. I mean, think about it. What do you serve? What do you sacrifice for? What do you talk about in your free time? What do you trust in? What do you dwell upon? What do you sin to get or sin if you don't? What consumes your thoughts? All these things, no matter whether they're good or bad, can be idols. We can make the best things in the world idols. Well, here God's saying that He's going to remove them. All those things that we find security in, that we find comfort in, that we find satisfaction in, even though temporarily, God will remove. I mean, in this passage, He mentions horses and chariots, cities and strongholds, sorceries, Fortune tellers, carved images, pillars, Asherah, and cities. Basically, the people are trusting in military power. They felt secure as long as their their cities and their strongholds, as long as the walls stood. They covered their bases by offering sacrifices to false gods. They sought sorcerers and fortune tellers for wisdom just to get an outside perspective. But basically, they were not placing their full trust in God. They were not seeking their comfort, their security, their satisfaction in Him. And guys, we may not have images, graven images that we sacrifice chickens to, but there are plenty of idols in our lives. Every bit as much today as there were back then. They're much more elusive. They don't have the same type of image. We can make success... An idol I mean a lot of you are students you're here pursuing degrees in hopes that you can attain some level of success for some of you it's identity it's how you view yourself or how other people view you that matters for some of you it could be your family You're willing to sacrifice and give yourself for them and you make them your idols. It could be your friends. It could be relationships. It could be wealth. It could be possessions. It could be sports. I mean, you name it. We can turn things into an idol. Even even those spiritual moments that come from God. How many of us have had these sort of mountaintop moments where we felt really close to God? And we wanted it, and that's a good thing. But then our life becomes a pursuit of really not seeking God, but seeking that same emotional feeling. That, that all our efforts are to try to recreate that time, to recreate that same sort of feeling. And so we're willing to, to put ourselves in compromising situations or, or in any type of, of, um, aesthetical, uh, whether it be lighting or or the music or you name it, and we think that we've somehow had some spiritual experience because we were emotionally stirred. I mean, that's a big one. It's a good thing to receive that from God when it's genuinely from God. But we seek after God, not after the feeling. But God makes us this promise, you know. he's, He's going to purify His people. He promises that He will make Himself our sole comfort, our soul satisfaction, our soul trust. He demands our whole hearts. And so if you're coming to Christ a bit like Janis Joplin and saying, come on, take another little piece of my heart now, baby, that's not good enough. Instead, we need to be singing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. He demands everything. He deserves everything. And He will purify His people. But we don't sit idly by in this. We participate in sanctification. In this being made holy. In this being made more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. The Bible describes sanctification as a purification by fire. As a as a putting to death the deeds of the body. As demolishing idols. Now, when I look at those three examples, I'm thinking, that's painful. That's going to hurt. Fire, putting to death, demolishing. And a lot of times it is. But it's necessary. It's for our good. We have this unique privilege and responsibility given by God to participate as Christ performs heart surgery on us, removing those things that hinder us from fully loving Him. Friends, our sanctification is absolutely necessary. It's going to be painful, but it's good. And so we can delight in God's work of salvation as He establishes a remnant for Himself and He purifies them. Because third, the, op- the other option is this king is going to come to judge the nations. Verse 15 says, God says, In my anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Here God is speaking of His inevitable judgment that will come upon all who did not follow Him. This along with so many passages elsewhere in Scripture affirms that God is going to guarantee that His wrath, His anger, His vengeance will be poured out on all who do not obey, on all who do not abide in Him, on all who do not follow Him, on all unrepentant sin. Friends, I've said it before, you're going to hear it a lot from me. Sin is an attitude of rebellion against God in thought, in word, and in deed. It's an attitude of rebellion Sin is not just some failure to follow some arbitrary moral code. I mean, this is a direct affront on who God is. It's a refusal to live as He had designed it. But, but it's more than that. It's a personal attack on Him. I mean, God didn't say, do not murder, because murder was at one point an unimportant thing. Like, some, like it just didn't matter. And He just called it bad and then it was bad. No, murder is bad because God is a life-giving God. He's a living God. He restores. He produces life. He speaks life into existence. And so, to take life away is a denial of the very character of God. Since we're a bunch of young folks here, lust—you know, finding physical sexual satisfaction in other people. This is a big deal, not because God wants to ruin your fun, ruin your enjoyment, because but because God is absolutely pure. God is a covenant-keeping, faithful, and trustworthy God. And it's not that He says, all sex is bad, No, he gives parameters in which sex is a glorious thing. In which it can be done to the praise and honor of God in in the context of a covenant-keeping marriage. But to go outside of that, to pursue it apart from God, is to deny his character of purity. Is to deny his character of faithfulness. Is to deny his character of being a covenant-keeping God. And so these things matter. Sin is not arbitrary disobedience to a moral code that God set apart. It's in a personal attack against God. And therefore, He must punish it. And God makes this guarantee. Your attitude towards Him in this life will be His attitude towards you in the judgment day. Each one of us is going to have to stand and give an account to God. We will stand before Him as our judge. And if we have spent this life rejecting Him, He will reject us. But if we accept Him, He will accept us. So this warning is for all of you who do not believe in Jesus. He is the Son of God who became man. He took on flesh. He lived this life that we were unable to live, this perfect and holy life. And He offered it up as a substitute for us. He took upon Himself the wrath that your sin and my sins deserved. So that we might have the hope of reconciliation to God. And after three days, God rose Him from the grave. Which confirmed the fact that He was the Son of God. It verifies that God accepted Jesus' punishment. And said, that is enough. Sin has been paid for. It has been atoned for. And also, it it is a guarantee that all will be raised and stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. He will judge. And the only hope for us is Himself to repent of our sin and to believe in Him. Friends, you have this one life, this one time, this one opportunity to come to Christ. After that, it's done. Those who have repented, believed in Jesus, followed after Him, will spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Those who continue to rebel, to reject God, to go their own way, to stand, to say, I'm going to stand before God on my own righteousness, to them, they will remain for all eternity under the wrath of God. And so this is Micah's picture to us of the shepherd king who will come and will establish a remnant for himself. He will purify a people and he will judge the nations. And it's also our vision, vision of Redeemer Church. Because we strive to, or we exist to exalt Christ, we strive to see lives transformed to the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit to all peoples. And the question is, will this vision be yours? How will this change your life? Will you truly mean what you sing, or what you say as you sing, High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven joys. O bright heaven's sun, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us through Your Word. That You are a God who has spoken into history to offer promise of redemption through your Son, Jesus Christ. And just as Micah had prophesied 700 years before He would actually come, you were faithful to keep your promise to send Jesus to be that King, that long-expected Messiah. God, I, I pray that as we reflect on our own lives, as Your Word has continued to penetrate our souls, that we would be honest with ourselves. That we would not assume upon a point in time in which we prayed a prayer or were baptized, that, or that we would assume that we're basically good and can do things on our own but that we will realize that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. We have attacked you. We have rebelled against you. And that that deserves punishment because you are a good God. Your goodness requires that you punish sin. So God, I pray that when we recognize our, our great need for Jesus, that we would fall on our knees and gladly receive Him. We would turn from our sin and follow Him. And that we would rejoice. And as a re- result that of this faith that You have given to us, that we might go out into this world as do, as a line, that we would be a means of blessing and those who are willing to participate in Your war to establish Your kingdom. God, I... I want to see lives transformed. And I know that you can work in spite of the flawed speaking and singing of of your people. And so, oh Lord, I pray that that your spirit would do this. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.